0: 18 wheels are a-driving through the dawn There's a blue ridge mountain sunrise filling the mirrors And the ashtray's full The coffee's almost gone And the trucker's heading west to Colorado Passing the miles with his friends on the CB Coast and tonight the truck stops Somewhere out in nowhere And tomorrow's The wind and the open road And I believe he's gonna Drive that rig to glory And I believe I feel The freedom in his story Riding that diesel wine Chasing that long wide line, dropping that load on time,
2: and
1: he's going home. Hi everybody, and welcome to the Interactive Internet. I'm your host, Pete Carr, welcoming you to our Sunday show. And I know it's been uh, some time since we had a show on here. We used to have it on every Sunday, and I'll tell you real quickly what happened. I could go in to my show page, and I could schedule three months in advance, every Sunday, 6 p.m., and for 60 minutes of the show. I could go in and do that three months at a time. So I only had to set up a show one time every, uh, every three months. And then Blog Talk Radio changed it to where if you wanted a show on Sunday at 6 p.m., you had to go in and create that show for that Sunday. And when that show was done, you would have to go back in and create a show for the next Sunday and so on and so on. And I thought, well, you know, I I really enjoyed it when we could just go in and log in one time and set up 90 days' worth of shows. But every single week, and, you know, I'm on the road all the time. It's very difficult for me to get in here and to uh, set up a show every Sunday. That's why I really like the fact that when I, when I would set up a show, I'd set up 90 days' worth of shows. And then all those Sundays, all I had to do was just call in on my phone and do the show. And, you know, Mary Lou uh, would uh, would get home. And she would work the switchboard for me. So if I had a caller, we could put the caller online and, and talk or whatever. And it worked out really great. But now with um, with the system that Blog Talk Radio has, I can't set up 90 days worth of shows. I have to do it every single week. And I just haven't had the time to do it, folks. Um we have really been busy out here trucking around the country, and like the song says, I'm headed to Colorado. Finally. Um, You know, I normally run the southeastern United States, and I'm out for weeks at a time. I'm headed back into Denver, folks. So, uh, be that as it may, here we are. Uh, I scheduled this show for 90 minutes today. Not my usual 60. I have it on for 90 minutes today. We're going to give it a try. Now, we can cut the show off at any time up to 90 minutes, but I gave us that little extra time so that we can discuss uh, the gun situation in this country and and what's been going on the past couple of weeks, in particular, the uh, Orlando, Florida shooting at the uh, Pulse nightclub, a gay nightclub in uh, in Orlando. We want to talk about the Democratic response, uh, the sit-in in the House of Representatives. But more importantly, we want to talk about what can we do as individuals and as Americans? What can we do to lessen the Uh, violent shootings in this country, folks. You know, some people use the hashtag gun violence. No, it's not gun violence. It's people violence. People are the ones pulling the trigger. The guns are inanimate, period. They will do nothing until acted upon by a human being. You know, When somebody shoots another person, wounds them or kills them, and they're apprehended by the police, the police charge them with the crime, put them in jail, turn them over to our judicial system. And at that point, the individual committing the crime is charged with a crime, and that's who we put on trial. We find them guilty or not guilty or whatever. We don't try and convict guns. If you think that the inanimate object is more important than the perpetrator, then you do not understand our judicial system. The guns aren't even indicted. At the very most... The legal system in this country calls the guns. There are a lot of people in this country who want to go after the guns. They say nothing about the perpetrators. They say nothing about crime. They say nothing about how can we stop crime, how can we lessen it, because you're not going to stop all crime, folks. Let's face that. You're not going to stop all crime, and you're not going to stop all killings, but we can lessen it. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Anyway, I'm kind of waiting for Mary Lou. I thought Mary Lou would be on. Um, It's really difficult having a 60-minute show as a monologue. And it's even harder when it's 90 minutes. I always like to have somebody to bounce my, my words up, you know, back and forth with. In the meantime, if you're listening and you'd like to call in, you can call in. You can talk to me. My number is 646-478-5150. Now, I'm trying a new cordless headset on my phone here, folks. And I really need somebody to call in and say, yeah, you sound good, or no, you sound muffled, or whatever. But I need need a sound check, folks. So somebody call in and give me a, a sound check. Um, I was talking to one guest prior to uh, prior to the show, and she said I sounded fine. So uh, we'll go with that for right now until somebody else calls and says different. Anyway, first off, you know, let's um, let's pause for a moment and think about the victims of violent crime. Everybody that has been a victim of violent crime. You know, if you're a praying person, say a prayer for them. If you're not, think good thoughts about them. You know, victims don't ask to be victims. They, they are there, they are in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they are victimized by criminals. They didn't ask for that, folks. So let's have some good thoughts about them, the people who have been wounded, killed, carjacked, robbed at gunpoint, robbed at knife point, whatever. If they're a victim of the crime, uh, they should be uppermost in our minds. Because we as a society need to lessen the amount of crime in this country. And really, folks, it's gotten out of hand. Crime statistics are, are off the wall. Now, except for uh, murders, murder is actually down the past couple of years murder statistics are down the past couple of years but all other kinds of crime are up and why is that well I, I put criminals into two different categories or, or crime motivation into two different categories two basic categories greed and stupidity that's what I boil down crime to they either want something of yours or they're acting stupid. There's other motivations, of course, but I boil it down to those two. Let's um let's have a little background here. I was born in nineteen fifty one. And in the society that I grew up in in the 1950s and the 1960s, practically every single household in my neighborhoods had weapons. With rare exception, every single household in my neighborhood had firearms, everyone. And we didn't have near the amount of crime. We didn't have near the amount of accidental shootings, you know, kids getting a hold of a gun. We didn't have that. But yet, every home in my neighborhood had a firearm. Almost 100% ownership of weapons in homes. But yet, we rarely had crime and we rarely had accidental shootings. We rarely had Um, what you could call crimes of passion, where somebody goes nuts and shoots their husband or wife. We rarely had that. And I I continually ask myself, what changed? Well, the neighborhoods that I grew up in, in the 50s and 60s, folks, the reason that there was almost 100% ownership of firearms possession of firearms in the homes was because I grew up on military bases. And at that time in the 50s and 60s, most of the soldiers brought their weapons home with them. My dad was, he started out as a tech sergeant and then in 1955 he was uh, promoted to warrant officer. And I remember we were living in Blue Island, Illinois in 55. And I remember Dad brought home a forty five automatic pistol. That was his um that was his sidearm. It was issued to him and he brought it home. Now, you know, I'm four or five years old. My brother Michael uh was two or three years old. My sister Kathy hadn't been born yet. So I was about four or five years old. Mike was about two or three. And my dad took all of us into the bedroom and he took his 45 and he put it up in the top drawer of the of the uh, bureau, you know, of the, the dresser. And he said, you don't touch this. You never touch this. This is not a toy. This is where it stays always. And, you know, about once every couple of weeks, He would take us back into the bedroom, and he'd open the drawer, and he'd take his forty-five out, and he'd say, what is this? And I'd look at it, and I'd say, it is not a toy. He'd say, good, and he'd put it away again. I learned to stay away from that. You know, when you take a child, the first things that you teach a child, the very first things that you teach them, are going to be the things that they will remember the rest of their lives. The first lessons are the biggest. If you are a gun owner and you have babies in the house, when they start to talk, teach them a gun is not a toy. Let that be their first full sentence. And remind them of that. Continually remind them of that. That's going to lessen the amount of kids playing with guns. You know, I just saw a six-year-old shot and killed a four-year-old. Mom had the gun. Uh, it was not secured. The six-year-old got a hold of it killed a four-year-old. Now, folks, if you have guns in your home, It is your responsibility to make sure that they are properly secured from tampering. And that means putting a lock on it, putting it away from the kids. Trigger lock on it, put it in a safe, or do both. But damn it, don't leave the guns laying around. You know, you may live in a nasty neighborhood, but unless you live in Fort Apache or something. You don't need to have that gun within a moment's reach at all times. Because if it's, in, if it's within a moment's reach of you, it's within a moment's reach of that child. Lock it up. Colorado, we passed a law a couple of years ago. And it outlaws puffing. Now, some of you may not know what puffing means. Puffing is in the wintertime. A person will go out and start their car to warm it up, and they will leave it running, and they will go back in the house till the car warms up. And they're lucky if they come back and the car is still there. That's called puffing. You are not allowed in the state of Colorado It is against the law to go out and start your car, leave the keys in ignition, leave it running, and go back in the house. Leave it unattended. That's against the law. If we can do that, if we can make it illegal to leave a car unsecured and running, if we can make a law to do that, we can make a law that if you have a firearm in the house, it needs to be locked up. Like I said, if you live in a really rough neighborhood, then get yourself a shoulder hoster or or carry it on your person or whatever. You know, open carry the weapon in your home. If nothing else, you are physically connected to it. It is less likely to be picked up by a child. The second thing I would say is if you live in a neighborhood where you have to carry a gun in your own home at all times you need to move out of that neighborhood. You know, I've when I came back from Germany in 68, I graduated from high school. I came back to the States. My dad went to Vietnam. We went to Detroit. And me, fresh out of high school in 1968, 69, I was, you know, the hippie type and all that. And I went downtown Detroit. And I moved out of the house. We lived up in Warren. I moved out of the house, and I moved down by Wayne State University in Detroit. And I lived in a rough neighborhood. I lived on the next block west from the old Jeffries Projects. And the Jeffreys Projects at the time in the 60s and 70s was a really rough place. I lived a block from that. I locked my door. I had a weapon in my apartment. And if somebody knocked on the door and I didn't know exactly who it was, I wouldn't open the door unless my gun was in my hand. That's the kind of neighborhood that I lived in. People describe it as Noah's Noah's Ark. If you didn't travel in pairs, you didn't travel. And even then, that was dangerous. I got mugged going to the store one night after dark. Uh, One of the the girls that lived in the apartments wanted to go to the store, and I walked over with her. And I got mugged. I got put down on the sidewalk and robbed. So even traveling in pairs didn't really do much good. In those neighborhoods. I lived in neighborhoods in Detroit, where even the cops didn't want to come down the street. You know, those are the kind of neighborhoods I lived in. And, and here I came from a world where terrorism and danger was ever present. I lived in countries in the world where if we went out of the com- – we, we couldn't even get out of our compound. We had an area where we lived in and we could not leave there. We did about a year in Budapest when my dad was stationed there at the American Embassy in 55 and 56. Now, if you know your history, 1956 was the Hungarian Revolution. We were stuck in our apartment complex and uh, we couldn't get out because the... uh, Hungarian partisan, the the revolutionaries, were fighting in the streets, literally fighting outside our front door. And then in November 56, the Soviets came in, they put down the revolution, and um, the American embassy evacuated all the personnel, either back to the States or to Germany. So we went to Germany. Germany in the 50s and 60s, there was the Bader meinhof gang, There was the Red Army Faction down in Italy. Um, There were Soviet spies everywhere. And it was a good place to live, but it was not a safe place to live. And I was just talking about this a couple of weeks ago, folks. You know, when we lived in Germany, we would be there for a year and a half, two, two and a half years at a time, and then Dad would go back to the States and, and do a tour of duty at a duty station someplace in the United States. Um, White House, Fort Dix, New Jersey, Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, whatever. And when we got on the ships at Bremerhava to come back to the States, we thought, you know, we're going home we are going to a safe place. Because in the 60s, Europe was not a safe place. The United States was a safe place. And that changed after the, after the first World Trade Center bombing, and it, tra- it, it, it certainly changed after the September 11th, 2001 attack. But, but growing up, We always considered the United States was our safe space. That was our safe haven, and we were going home. And we always felt better getting off that ship, either Bayonne or New York City, getting off that ship and getting back on American soil because we we were back in the world. We were back where it was safe to walk around, and you didn't have to worry about it. All that's changed changed due to crime and it's changed due to terrorism the uh, the shooting in Orlando um, that was terrorism folks that was an act of terrorism plain and simple and I, I, I just heard today I was listening to WWTN out of Nashville big station Big Talk Station, and they were talking about guns and gun rights and, and the Constitution and all that. And they said, "Well, you know, one of the one of the uh, panelists said something about if there were more people with guns, if there was somebody a good guy with a gun in the uh, nightclub in Orlando, maybe there wouldn't have been 49 dead." Let's go back a little ways and examine that. Let's look at another example. About a year or so ago, Las Vegas, Nevada, there was a husband and wife killing team. They had shot uh, a Las Vegas or North Las Vegas police officer. They had gone down to a Walmart. The, um, The guy was up by the checkout counters brandishing a weapon and all that there was a good guy with a gun in the store with a concealed weapons permit. And he drew his gun and he tried to sneak up on this guy and put him down. Unfortunately, he didn't know that the guy's wife was behind him and she had a gun and she killed him. When you're in an urban combat situation like that, the first thing you do is assess the situation. And the second thing you do that you do is assess the situation. You have to identify all the threats in there. And this guy failed to identify the second threat, the woman. And the woman nailed it. The good guy with the gun was killed. Could say what would happen in Orlando. All we can do is speculate. You know, that's going to be studied for a long time to come. That was a long, drawn-out thing. It was over three hours long. Uh, A lot of people have taken the Orlando Police Department to task for their handling of it. It's going to be looked at for a long time to come and studied for a long time to come. You know... our original question. What can we do? I already gave you two things to do, folks. Number one, teach your children. If you have firearms in the home, you teach them a gun is not a toy. Teach them to stay away from it. Teach them before they can stand up. Teach them when they are still crawlers. Number two, if you have a firearm in the home, it is your responsibility to secure that weapon. If we can make it illegal to leave a car unsecured and unattended, we can make a law that says if you have a firearm in the home, you have to have it locked up. And I, honest to God, wish that there was a program. If you don't think you can afford a trigger lock, I wish there was a program available where you could get them for free and secure your weapons. That's the two things. That's that's the first two things you need to do. You know, I kind of thought being a controversial subject, we would have more callers on here, but we don't. Uh, I don't know whatever happened to uh, to Mary Lou. She's not on. Try and message her while we are talking. If maybe I can send her a message, I don't know what happened to her. Okay, there's a message. Um, Mary Lou, you know if you if you're regular listeners, you know that she helps out on the switchboard, and uh, she is my foil. You know, she's the person that if nobody else calls in, she calls in. And and we talk back and forth on the subject. And I know she's passionate about uh, guns and and crime and all that. Anyway, I'm also taking my break here, folks. I'm sitting on top of a little hill over here in uh, southern Illinois, headed back to Denver. Anyway. Anyway. You know, there's something else related with teaching your children that a gun is not a toy. You have to teach them that crime is not a way out either. You know, look at at some of the video games, some of the rap lyrics, and all that. And it's like, you know, you pick up a gun and you go shopping. Oh well, there she is. Maybe she forgot about it. Let me see if I can get her connected. Mary Lou. Hello. I'm um, hello. I'm
3: going in where it's quiet. I can mute it. Hold on.
1: All right. Okay. Anyway, what I was saying is, you know, you look at, you look at all of the influences that children and young adults have and not a, not a whole lot of it is very good is it folks you know this is one of those don't get me started things but when i was growing up we had um we had little league we had scouting programs and and those taught us how to behave in the world how to conduct ourselves how to be decent citizens. It's unfortunate that for for a number of years, um, especially the Boy Scouts were on the outs with a couple of liberal groups. At one time, the Boy Scouts were even branded a hate group. Um, Unfairly, I think. But, you know, those are the kind of influences that we had growing up. First off, growing up in the military community, you have that that sense of honor and duty that just comes through every day. And then in the scouting programs, you're you're taught to be decent citizens. Kids don't have that so much anymore. I'd really love to see a resurgence of the scouting movement. Fortunately, the way our our connected society is, you know, We're connected to the internet, but we're disconnected from everybody else. Kids don't go out and play anymore. They don't join the scouts. They don't go out camping, and they don't go out to the jamborees and all that. They're connected to the internet and smartphones, and they're texting each other all the time. But they're not functioning as a society. They are not learning a damn thing when it comes to treating your fellow citizen how to treat somebody else now road rage has gotten out of control in this country because we have disconnected ourselves from the big picture folks we are no longer a society we are clumps of individuals here and there that's another thing that you can do to reduce violent crime get your kids involved in, in the scouting programs. Yeah, you know, why am I talking so much about kids? Because this is where criminals are born, folks. If you want to stop a criminal, you got to go back and stop him or her from becoming a criminal. Your parents, your responsibility is to raise your children. Yeah, I know. Liberal parenting, you know, do what the, you know, just let the kid do what the, what the kid wants to do. That's bullshit and you know it. I was just looking at something. Maybe you remember this, maybe you don't. There was a kid named Trayvon Johnson down in Miami. He was caught burglarizing a home. He was caught by the woman homeowner, he was caught coming out of her window. She shot and killed the kid. Now, Johnson's cousin, this is what Johnson's cousin said. You have to look at it from every child's point of view that was raised in the hood. You have to understand how he's going to get his money to have clothes to go to school. You have to look at it from his point of view. This cousin was justifying burglary. By saying, how is he going to get his money? What other options did he have besides burglary? Every kid in the hood has no options except to turn to a life of crime. And you know what, folks? That's true. That's really true. How else is he going to get his money? He comes from a poor neighborhood. Why is it a poor neighborhood? And what happened in a poor neighborhood? You know, it's a poor neighborhood because of 50 or 60 years of democratic control of our cities. And here is, here is the Democrats in a nutshell. The Democrats went into the poor neighborhoods and promised these people better tomorrow for their vote today. The problem is, tomorrow never comes. This is what's happened. This is how we have poor neighborhoods. This is how we have crime-ridden neighborhoods. Because these people are not given a chance to get out of it. Maybe not physically, but at least economically. This Johnson kid's cousin is exactly right. How else is he going to get his money? You know, we laugh at that. We laugh at, the, at, at, at things like that, at statements like that, but we don't think for a minute and say, you know what, that is right. What is that kid going to do in a poor neighborhood besides steal? What opportunities are being given to them? Nothing. Nothing, folks. When was the last time you ever heard of a job there down in the ghetto? You never have. It won't happen. Maybe it won't happen with Democratic control of the cities. You know, if I was mayor of Denver, that's the first thing I'd do. I would go to the most poverty-ridden neighborhood in in Denver, Colorado, and I would invite employers down, and I'd say, we're going to have a job there. We're going to get these people out of poverty. We are going to get them jobs. We are going to give them the training and the ability to get themselves out of poverty. We may not be able to move them out of their house, but we can move them up the ladder. And that's what I would do. You know, you don't have to go to the rich neighborhoods and make a grand showing of yourself. You need to go where people are broken. You need to go where people do not have opportunity. That's where you are needed the most. Go in there and get them jobs. Get them training. Get them on their feet. Take them out of poverty. Because if a person is making a decent living, they are not going to resort to crime. They're not going to take a gun and hold you up. Not if they're making a decent living, folks. You know, gun fence, the gun violence people, It's very easy for them to say, okay, here's what we can do to reduce crime. We're just going to take all the guns away. They are not looking at the root problems of the issue. They think somehow by taking some poor hunter in Wisconsin's shotgun away that they are going to reduce crime in L.A. It doesn't work like that, folks. You don't need to go take some guy's gun away from him or whatever or make him register it. You don't need universal background check. Hell, that's another thing that pisses me off. Universal background checks. You know, when criminals buy and sell guns, the last thing on their mind is a background check. All they care about is your money good or not. I am not in favor of universal background checks, they do nothing to stop crime. Not a thing. Prove to me otherwise, but for right now, I can't see it. Okay. Anyway, Lou, are you there?
3: Yes, I am.
1: All right. <laughs> how are you doing?
3: Doing pretty good. Tired, but but good.
1: Yeah, I real, worked today. Real so. quickly, Um Real quickly, Lou you know uh, I've been at it for a half hour straight here <laughs> yeah but let's uh you know for for our regular listeners can you give me about a 3 minutes or 4 minutes um what's been happening with you and how you're doing
3: well i wound finally wound up in back surgery to get that taken care of and i was fortunate enough that i evidently am healing a little bit faster than they thought i was I was able to go back to work in six and a half weeks, which is very unusual, especially for the area of the back that was operated on, which is the lower back, and that operates legs and everything else. But I have my walker from my knee surgery, and I have my cane, and not that anybody knows this about me, especially Pete, but I'm stubborn, and I was going back to work one way or the other. So I did. It's been rough, and each week is better. I'm stronger. I can do a little more. I'm weaning out of my brace, which is a hallelujah. I hate that thing. I can't move. But I can be out of it all day, and as long as I'm careful, and I know when I have pushed too far. My body knocks on my head and says, okay, back off. And I do Till I get calmed down and, you know, get over it, and then I go on and I do some more. So I don't push it too far. I take care of it, and I'm able to accomplish a lot that way, which makes me feel very good and like I'm useful, not useless, which was the point I had reached. This was even after surgery because I wasn't allowed to do anything. My list of cannot do even included laundry. How do you hurt yourself doing laundry?
1: Yeah.
3: Well, I found out you have to bend to pick things up. You have to bend to get in the washer and dryer to get the clothes out. And that's why it's on the list. You can't bend. can't bend, twist, or lift. Wow. Up until probably this week, I couldn't even lift a gallon of milk. Now I can carefully, and I know I'm lifting it, but I can do it. That's all yeah. I care about. Were, I can do it. Um,
1: hmm. You were you were out of work for how long? It took him five
3: work. months. It took him five months to finally decide, going through all the loops that are necessary with insurance, etc. Um, basically, the federal government. It took him five months to finally reach a point of, yeah, you really do need the surgery.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: So God done. And even coming out of the hospital, yes, I was in pain. Yes, it was extremely difficult to move. To get out of bed, you have to roll a certain way and do certain things in order to be, even be able to get out of bed. And it's not easy. I learned a lot, my son taught me a lot because he's been through the surgery twice. Yeah, twice. And uh-huh. unfortunately, he's been a fail. He didn't have enough uh, bone mass or strength or whatever to even hold the rods that they put in him. They knew I wouldn't be able to, so they did me a different way, which is awesome. He got a spinal cord stimulator, and they knew when they put it in that he would not be 100%. They hoped maybe 80%, but I think they got 60 but you know, yeah. every little bit helps when you can't move, and when you're eight personalities, it's ten times worse because eight okay, personalities so, don't give up.
1: All right, you were you were out of work for six months. You, you had back surgery. Now you're you're on the mend. You're feeling a lot better, and you're back to mm-hmm. work. And, yep. you know. um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie. Have you ever seen the movie with um I'm trying to think of his name. The guy that did um the uh, National Treasure movies.
3: Oh Nicholas Cage? Huh? Nicolas Cage?
1: Nicholas Cage. He did another movie that I enjoyed. It was it was called It Could Happen to You.
3: I didn't see that one, I don't think.
1: He was he was a New York City cop. Him and his partner went into a diner. He didn't have the change oh, yeah. for a for a tip. So he mm-hmm. told the woman, he said, "Here's a lottery ticket. If I win it, I'll split it with you."
3: Yeah, I did see that. that oh, was fantastic!
1: Okay, yeah, that was a movie. Anyway, there was another scene in there, and this kind of reminds me of you. There was okay. another scene in there. Him and his Him and his partner go into this Korean grocery store. And they, you know, they walk in and they obviously know the proprietor and they say hi to him, how you doing, you know, everything's fine. And Nicolas Cage asks, he says, where's your wife? And the Korean proprietor said that she was out sick that day. Well, anyway... Nicholas Cage and his partner walk walk back outside. Nicholas Cage says to his partner, he says, uh, Kim's place is getting robbed. And the guy says, how do you know that? And he said, because it said his wife is out sick. He said, that woman would work if she was dead. Yeah. And, and I thought, sounds- you know what? You know, that sounds like somebody I know. Yeah. No, no, you know, no offense to you, but that sure, you know, I I know six months out, six months without work had to have been like torture for you.
3: Yeah, and several people, including yourself, at times I know, suffered because of it.
1: Yeah.
3: And I apologize. Uh,
1: Okay. Well, I'm glad that um, that the surgery you had has helped you and you're back to work and uh you know it's gonna be a process, it's gonna take some time to to get back in shape, but I'm sure that uh that you've got that all under control.
3: hmm Yeah, I don't give
1: up okay. either. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I don't know how much of the show that you've heard. Um just to just to give you a real quick um recap, we're talking about violent crime we're talking about guns and criminals and everything else and i said you know uh, the the question that i posed today is what can we do about crime guns and violence and i also touched on um responsible gun ownership if you have a gun in the home you lock it up so the kids don't Mm -hmm. get it Mm -hmm. you teach your children from a very early age, you teach them it's not a toy. You teach them to stay away from it. And like I said, when when I was growing up uh, in the fifties and sixties, uh, practically every home in my neighborhood had guns because mm-hmm. I lived on military bases, and our dads brought their weapons home at that time. That's right uh, that was that was changed in nineteen ninety three by Bill Clinton Bill Clinton said that you cannot have guns in government quarters anymore and that actually changed things um, but when I was growing up in the fifties and sixties, and I don't know how how it was in your air force community, but in the in the army, you know the army posts. All of our dads brought their weapons home, and we all knew, you don't touch it. It's a dangerous object, and you don't mess with it. And we never messed with it. And we never had um, anywhere near the amount of accidental or intentional shootings that we have now. And, and the only thing I can think of, it's not the guns that have changed. It's the people and their attitude towards the guns. And the kids, the kids aren't taught it's a dangerous object, stay away. You know, 8, 9, 10, 11 teenager video games all day. And then they go in the bedroom and they see mom or dad's gun and they'll pick it up and play with it because they're learning it on the video screen.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep. We're
1: not teaching them, we're not teaching them the right way. You know, it was kind of it, it's it's kinda of funny to say this, but growing up in a military community we hardly ever played war. Mm-mm. And that's no. because that that's simply because we knew that was our dad's job to go to war. Yep. Exactly. Yep. We didn't want them to go
3: cowboys, to war. Cowboys Cowboys and Indians, yes, but not war.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: Now I have a caption in in my mind, and you've probably heard me say this more than once, but my caption for a lot of that scenario with the um the kids progressive parenting and all that it's lazy parenting they don't want to be responsible,
1: yeah yep and then and then I brought it forward a little bit, and I was talking about that um. That killing in Miami, the guy's mm-hmm. name was uh, Trayvon or Trevon Johnson. Yeah. And and Johnson's cousin said, well, how's he going to get his money? You know, because he's living in a poor neighborhood. And these neighborhoods have been poor for generations.
3: Living on the outskirts of some of these poor neighborhoods, like in Los Angeles on the outskirts, et cetera. There is more um, more places they can get a job. It may be not a huge paying job, but it's a job. And they can get at least spending money or school money. Yeah, There's a lot of those places around. A lot of those kids, unfortunately, it's peer pressure. Well, they would like to go and get that job, but, oh, man, are they going to catch it from their friends. Yep. And that's really what it is. It's not because there's nothing around for them. If that was the case, there's a lot of them that have gotten out of that area that wouldn't have gotten out. But they saw the opportunity. They saw what they could do. You know, I can start here, and I can work my way up, and I can get out of here. Yeah. And they have because they you know, stayed away from the peer pressure.
1: That's that's true to a certain extent. There is. It's it's not all the government's fault. It's peer pressure. It's parent. It's parental pressure too. Um, lazy parental pressure. You know when. When, when we were growing up in the 50s and 60s, if nothing else, when a kid hit 18 years old, when a when a boy became a man at the age of 18, the first thing he had to do was to go down and sign up for the draft. Yeah. And, and they were drafted. And they were put into mm-hmm. the military. And that was their way out. And I know even people in the late 60s. I mean, I was... 18 when they had the, the lottery, the last draft. And I think, if I remember, my number was like 102 or 120 or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I knew what was going on. I was raised in the Army. I was raised in the military community. And my dad said, if you're going to get drafted, go and enlist because then you will have uh, some say in, in what you're going to do because if you wait to get drafted, they're going to put you in the infantry, send you to Vietnam, and you ain't coming home. That's right. So I, went, so I went and enlisted in the Army. When my draft number came up, you know, in that draft lottery, um, I, went, mm-hmm. I went and enlisted in the Army and I was able to pick and choose basically what I wanted to do in the military.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When we did away with the draft... We went to the all-volunteer army. And for a time, young men and even young women in the poor communities would, would join the military to get out of that. That was their way out. And then the military, after, after Vietnam, the military cut back on their recruiting. And they also stiffened up the requirements where um, a, a kid with without a high school diploma, couldn't, could not join the military. They had yeah, to have a I high know. school diploma. They had to go in and take their, take their entrance exams and all that. They had, to, they had to have good scores to get in. And the schools, mm-hmm. the civilian schools, were not teaching these kids. They were hanging out instead of learning. It was kind of a catch-22. Mm-hmm. To get a good job, you have to have an education. But if you're not being educated and you don't want the education, you're not going to get the good job.
3: hmm And when that happens, they blame it on everybody else. It's not their fault. Well, if they had right. halfway applied themselves, they might have gotten it.
1: Right. So what other opportunities did they have except to go breaking and entering, you know, burglarizing, robbing, getting involved in drugs, Oh, uh, Becoming drug dealers, you know, having shootouts with other drug dealers, they were not given those opportunities to get out of that situation. And they're still not. You know, individually, and I have I have contacts and friends, um, Bishop Dale Bronner in Atlanta. Heck of a nice guy. He has one of the big mega churches in Atlanta. He also runs an institute where he takes young men and women from his congregation and he teaches them to be business managers, to go into business, to be good employees, to be, you know, to, to move into management. He does that. He does that for, for anybody from his congregation or, or they don't even have to be from his church. Um, he trains people to go into business, you know, go into the business world, maybe not to be individual business people, but to, um, to work at a company as a manager or assistant manager and then move up in management. He teaches them that. I'm looking to Bishop Dale Bronner as the individual that is going to help me my Atlanta area onco spaces. I want to take some of his people and put them into management positions for me. These are people who have not had the best of educations and the best of lives. They don't live in the best of the neighborhoods. But all they need is a fighting chance to get out of it. And if I can hire five or six of his graduates, that's five or six less people that, are, that will be liable, that will be likely... To go out and commit crimes because now you've given them a way up. Mm-hmm. That's what we you know, that's that's part of the way. That's another way that you take a bite out of crime. Put a person into a decent paying job. You know, that's six right. months a year on the, jo- on the job and they're not going to think about going out and committing a crime because they'll say, they'll, they'll have, by then, they'll have the street smarts enough to look at it and say, look what I could lose by going out and sticking somebody up. Two minutes left. You know, go ahead, Lou.
3: I said you have two minutes left. I have what? Two minutes left on the show.
1: No, it, I I put the show up for 90 minutes.
3: Oh okay, I didn't know that I wasn't there
1: yeah <laughs> i I got thirty one minutes left according to this
3: okay
1: yeah i okay. didn't I didn't tell you I put it for ninety minutes because of the subject mm-hmm. okay anyway, I believe in the long run that it is too simplistic and too foolish to think that all you have to do to do to stop violent crime in this country all you have to do is take the weapons away yeah maybe that will stop a child from killing another child if you take the gun out of the house okay I can guarantee that part but why should we infringe on the rights of millions of Americans in the chance that it might prevent one killing you know people are going to kill whether they use a 38 a 357 or a Mercedes Benz they're Mm going to kill you you have to get the thought of killing out of their minds and that is a problem that's a society problem That's, that's not a confiscation problem you're not going to solve it by confiscating my guns. You know, and, and I've known this for some time. Um, on Twitter, you have the ability to follow people or unfollow or block them. I am being blocked by everyone, by, by about a dozen People connected with the Every Town for Gun Safety, which is the Michael Bloomberg Let's Grab the Guns group. Mom's Demand, they're blocking me. Shannon Watts is blocking me. About a half a dozen of the big time followers of Mom's Demand are all blocking me now. I figure I must be on the right track if they're blocking me because now I'm a threat to them. That's right. What I say threatens them. They mm-hmm. they think you know they keep telling people publicly um, we're not here for gun confiscation you know Gabby Giffords and um, her husband and all that they're not they're not here to confiscate weapons they just want it you know they they want safe and responsible gun ownership they want universal background checks and all that shit um, I have said and I have found and reposted. Uh, Shannon Watts, where she said that only the police and military should have guns, and yet she tells people that she's not for confiscating them. Well, now Sh- yeah. Shannon Watts and all that, Shannon Watts and all them don't want me to see what they're saying on Twitter. You know, if if they're more than willing to infringe on on the Second Amendment rights, let's go ahead and infringe on the First Amendment rights. And, and deny free speech. That's where they're coming from. There was a guy yeah, the but other day... you know, day, that's,
3: been, that's been tried, though. They have tried some of that. They've tried shutting they people try. up.
1: They do it all the time, Lou.
3: I know. So they are infringing on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I know they got me suspended from Twitter a couple months ago. Yes. <laughs> and and I got a, I got a hold of support, and I said, why am I suspended? And they said, well, you know, there were some complaints, and I said, okay, fine. Show me what I said. <laughs> Show me. Just exactly, what did I say to get suspended? And they couldn't do it, and they reinstated me. That's right. You know, I know that in the rank and file of Moms Demand, there's a lot of people who, honest to God, believe we need to do something about um, the violence portrayed by people with guns. They call it gun violence. I don't call it gun violence. I call it people with guns violence. You know, there's decent people in that Moms Demand group that want to see this done away with. They, they want to lessen uh, the amount of violent crime in this country. And, and yeah, that's what we're here for. But like I said, taking away the Second Amendment rights of, of 300 and some odd million innocent Americans cool. is not going to solve the crime problem. It's not going to stop the violence. You have to go back before the violence happened and look and see what put that person at. You know, we just had a mother down there in suburban Houston, shot her two daughters, came out of the house, police showed up, police told her to drop her weapon, and she refused to drop her weapon, so the police shot her. And this woman was supposedly a Second Amendment, um, you know, gun rights advocate and all of this. Killed her two daughters and was subsequently killed by the police. That just happened yesterday, the day before. Not all the information is in as to what happened. But I'll tell you what, the anti-gun people are having a field day with this. They have no clue what went through that woman's mind when this happened. Nobody knows right now because I've looked at all the news reports and the police are not speaking about the circumstances or the motive. I can look at it from the outside and say, you know, there's three people that shouldn't be dead right now. No matter how she stood on guns or whatever, there's three people that shouldn't be dead. And what can we do to prevent that? You know, apparently, up until this point, she didn't exhibit um, any psychological behavior that would say to a sane person, that woman needs to have her guns taken away. But we don't know. We don't know everything about this yet. This is brand new, and and it's still being investigated. But the simplistic solution that Michael Bloomberg and Shannon Watson come up with is, if we take away everybody's guns, nobody will get shot. And yet there are recorded instances of people who have been arrested by police who somehow managed to get the officer's gun away from them and wind up shooting a cop. Mm-hmm. It's gonna happen. You know, confiscation of weapons, universal background checks. Here, here's what, real quickly. This is what a universal background check is. I have a firearm, and I have a twenty-five, twenty-six-year-old son. If I were to sell a gun to my son, my son would have to get a background check in order for me to make the sale.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Now, the way they're talking, if you give a gun as a gift, there's no background check. You know, I've still transferred a gun from one person to another, whether it's I get money or not. The transaction still happens, so... Why not, Why don't we have universal, universal background checks? Anytime a gun changes hands, you have to have a background check. He's my son, for God's sake. You know, why should I get a background check on my own son?
3: Especially if you nope. know more about him than the background check is going to show.
1: Well, certainly. <laughs>
3: In other words, it's stupid.
1: You know, I was living in Warren, Michigan, or my mom was living in Warren in uh, 69, 70, 71. And I joined the Army. The FBI did a background check on me. They pretty much knew who I was because of dad. I was sitting over a couple of doors down at Patterson's and they got a knock on the door and everybody's just kind of sitting around the family room bullshitting and everything. This guy in his suit's standing there and uh, Bob answered the phone uh, answered the door and the guy identified himself. He said, I'm with the FBI. I'm doing a background check on one of your neighbors. Can I come in and ask you a couple of questions? So he came in and he asked us, you know, he, he asked the group. There were three or four of us there. They said, do, uh, do you guys know Peter Carr? And, they, you know, everybody said, yeah. And I'm sitting right there. And he asked a couple of questions, and he said, thank you and love. And we're laughing our asses off. I'm sitting right there while he asked a background check on me. <laughs> hmm. No figures. but i cannot I cannot see doing universal background checks. I cannot see confiscation of weapons it it doesn't you know um, criminals are going to get guns no matter what if nothing else they'll bring them over the border from Mexico or Canada or mm-hmm. they'll make their own or whatever's going to mm-hmm. happen they will they will somehow obtain a firearm. You know, what these groups, they may be well-meaning in the start, but what these groups are up to is confiscation and revocation of the Second Amendment. That's what they're, that's what they're up to, and that's why I oppose it. They are not looking at the root causes. They are trying to indict inanimate objects you know, by saying gun violence, they've taken the human out of the equation. Hmm. They don't want you to think about the human. They want you to think about the inanimate object. Okay, now we got about uh, we got about twenty minutes left here. I was really hoping that some of the gun sense people, you know, and I posted it on Twitter. I was hoping that some of them would come on, or one of them, or somebody come on and defend their position but they, they never can't will do that no they never will i'm sure some of them are listening to this to see what i'm a, what i'm what i'm all about mm. but no they cannot come on and defend their position they don't want to get to the root of crime they don't want to solve crime they simply want to take your guns away And, you know, I think a lot of that um, being blocked by them, I think that happened after I made a statement about Eileen Warnos. And and mm. I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what happened, folks. I posted a tweet and I put the hashtag gunsense on it. And I said, in 1990, I was confronted by Eileen Warnos. Why am I not a victim? Because she saw I was armed. And I I made the statement, I'm keeping my guns. One of the morons on Twitter said something about all of Eileen Wuornos' victims were Johns. And she was a prostitute. And I posted back the short story of what happened. Here it is. I was hauling cars. I had a co driver that I was training to haul cars. We had loaded up in Jacksonville over at the Jacksonville, Florida Auto Auction. We were going to Texas. We were going to uh Houston, Texas. We loaded late. We got out of the out of the auction and we hit Interstate ten West. I got in the bunk and my co driver was driving. <laughs> Well, about an hour and a half later, pulls off into the rest area on Interstate 10, just west of I-75. I didn't think much of it at the moment. You know, I thought maybe he had to go in and get the bathroom or walk around and check the chains or whatever. Anyway, you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes goes by and he's not back in the truck. So I got up out of the bunk. I looked around, I looked in the mirrors, and I saw him standing back off to the side of our truck, and he was standing there talking to some woman. I looked, and I thought this woman had on like a man's shirt and nothing else. She had on, you know, a man's white shirt, loosely fitting, and when I got out, I I found out that she was wearing a pair of tan shorts and it looked like that's all she was wearing was the shirt because the shorts blended into her legs (laughs) anyway I had a little thirty-eight revolver that I carried with me and I took it, stuck it in my belt and I got out of the truck and I walked up to them and they're talking and she was asking my co-driver where we were going He was telling her that we're going to Texas. She said she wanted a ride to Louisiana. And he was explaining to her that Louisiana is on the way to Texas. I didn't have a good feeling about this woman. just, you know, older, rough-looking, didn't look like she had anything with her, no baggage, nothing like that. And I'm standing there. and She looked at me and she said, are you two running together? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, I'll ride with one, but I won't ride with two. And I said, okay, fine. You're not going with us anyway. And I told my co-driver, get back in the truck. And we walked back in the truck. We took off. About two miles down the road on the right-hand side, there was an exit there. And it was dark, but it was light enough that you could see there was a car parked up on the ramp. No lights, no nothing. And I told my co-driver, I said, you see that? That was a setup. That woman was going to rob you. Or us. And, and, And I mean, I laid into him. And I told him, you ever stop and try and pick up a woman again, and I will throw you out. Well, anyway, come to find out about a year and a half later, you know, I'm back down around Florida, and we're hearing about this Eileen Warnos got caught killing people, and they had a picture of her, and I looked at that, and I said, damn it, that was her. You know, and I got uh, thinking about it recently after all of this happened on Twitter, And I thought, you know, what if I had laid in the bunk? What if I was laying in the bunk sleeping and this bozo that I was running with had put her up in the truck and took off? There is a good chance that I might be dead right now because of her. Mm -hmm. But but how did we get out of that situation? I had a 38 in plain view. She saw it. She wasn't going to screw with us. If he was by himself, he would have been a victim. If I hadn't have gotten out of the truck, we both would have been victims. I am positive of that. And the only thing that saved us was the fact that I had a gun in plain view. You know, when you get around truck drivers, folks, always assume we got a weapon. You're going to be much better off if you just simply assume that. When we're pulled over for DOT checks or state patrol, first thing they ask us, you got any weapons. And, you know, if you tell them, yeah, they'll say, okay, you know, make sure it's secured out of my way and don't touch it. They don't confiscate it and arrest truck drivers. Hell, they'd have to put 90% of us in jail. But that's what, you know, a gun saved my life. I did not have to pull it out. I did not have to use it. But I guarantee you, people, if it wasn't for me standing there with that 38 in my belt, I believe he or I or both of us would have been dead. So, no, you are not going to confiscate my guns. You can make it illegal to possess a firearm in this country. And as long as I'm up here in a truck, assume that I have a weapon but you're not taking them from me. And by God, you're not taking them from the millions of other innocent people in this country who believe they have a right to protect themselves and their families. So when you get that notion out of your head, maybe we can start working on the true causes of crime in this country. Greed and stupidity. Yes, they are. Okay. All right, we got about about 10 minutes left here, Lou, so... Give me me your thoughts.
3: Oh, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. And, you know, the one thing you didn't, you haven't really touched on moms and Shannon and so forth, but, you know, she's all about this confiscating the guns and all this other stuff. But who goes around with armed guards? Shannon
1: Watts. Yes. Shannon Watts. She's
3: yes. got those she's got those guns around her,
1: yes. but yet
3: nobody else has that opportunity in her eyes. That is Mike, baloney.
1: Her and Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg is a billionaire. And he has armed security. Mm hmm. Yes, it is hypocrisy. Exactly. That's and that's I'm so tired what? of the
3: hypocrites in this country.
1: That's a real good reason why nobody should join Mom's Demand. Because Shannon Watts believes that she is more important than the average citizen. She has armed guards. She has armed security, folks. Yet she wants to take our guns away.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yes. That's a good reason for everybody to quit Mom's Demand right now. Yeah. Because she's even telling her supporters, you guys are not as special as I am.
3: That's right, and that's wrong.
1: Yeah, good point. There's
3: nothing special about her.
1: You're good point.
3: She is she is human like the rest of us so she needs to come back to earth. So, you know, I'm, I that's the way I feel.
1: I um I was looking at a trucking company website, and I was looking at the driver application and requirements and all that. Um, you cannot have had a felony conviction in the last seven years mhm you cannot You cannot have been incarcerated in the last ten years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You cannot have failed a drug test ever. You know, folks, when we put people in prison, we put them in there, they serve their sentence as prescribed by the court, and they are let out, and we expect them to be good, honest citizens from that point on and don't do anything wrong. And then we put restrictions on them where they can't get a decent job. What What other options now do they have? None, you know, I except re- uh, to get in trouble. I don't trouble. care. I don't care if I hire a person. I don't care if they have been convicted of a felony. As long as they don't steal from me or my customers or anybody around us, I don't care. I'm giving them that second chance. You know, I'm not going to say, have you had a felony conviction in the last X amount of years or whatever. I don't care. Just do the job, do it good, and treat everybody right. And if you screw up, I'll take you out back and take care of you myself. But yet, you just look at it. We, we incarcerate them. They serve their sentence. They come out. They don't want to go right back in, folks. You know, they want a decent job where they can support themselves and stay out of trouble. And then we make it damn difficult, if not impossible, them to get a job
2: That's what right. other choice do they fair. have
1: somebody comes along and says hey you know what man you can make an easy five grand just take this you know take this bag of drugs and run it up to New York from Florida and then they get caught by the privateers in Georgia and thrown back in jail again because nobody's given them, given them a chance you know Let's, let's finish this off right here. It is childish and stupid to believe that you are going to stop crime by taking away all the guns. Mm-hmm. It is intelligent and reasonable to believe that you can lessen crime in this country by looking at the root causes of crime and fixing that. That's where I stand, folks. You know, I would rather give a person a decent job than simply send my police in to have them confiscate the weapons it's a waste of policing it's a violation of a person's constitutional rights but give a person give them the opportunity yeah if you give them a decent job and they still turn out to be criminals you know what that's their choice But give them a chance. You're going to find that a lot of people that have been locked up want that chance. They say, yeah, I screwed up. I served my time. I don't want to ever go back. I want a decent job, support my family, and live a decent life. You know, teach your children to be good, honest citizens. And, and, you know, support them in that. Be parents. That's what Mary Lou was talking about. Is that these parents are... are Don't give a damn parents. They don't care what their kids do. Unfortunately, a lot of the times we have two parent or we have single-parent household, the parents working, the the children are under zero supervision. What have they learned? They're going to learn it from their friends. You know... Look at at what causes crime. Look at what makes a person be a criminal and put a stop to it. That's what you can do. Anyway, um, I'll give you about a minute, Mary Lou, for a closing statement.
3: (laughs) Basically become involved in your kids. I was totally involved in mine complained because they could never get away with anything because if whoever didn't know their dad they knew their mom but I had good kids I have good kids I'm very fortunate but it's you know communicate be involved and hey slow down on your driving come on guys you don't need to get there yesterday you need to get there tomorrow <sighs> And in one piece. Just yep. slow down, enjoy your trip, enjoy the scenery. There's some gorgeous scenery out there.
1: Yeah, we're coming up. Become on, involved. Um, we're 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 coming up on uh, Fourth of July weekend, big travel weekend next weekend, folks. So do be careful.
2: Mhm. Yes, please. Okay,
1: Mary Lou. Okay, Mary Lou. <laughs> um, we're running up against time. Uh, I appreciate your I'm listening, done. folks. And, um, you know, we will try and schedule a show as soon as we can. Uh, unfortunately, it's been a while, and I really need to get with Blog Talk Radio on this. But thanks for listening. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Mary Lou, for your input. Uh, as always, it's always much better for me to have somebody to talk with on here rather than an hour and a half monologue. Mm. Anyway, all I- right. Folks, we will see you next time here, right, uh, right here on Blog Talk Radio. I uh, appreciate you listening today. Thank you, Mary Lou. Thanks to everybody that's listening. And I am going to hit our closing theme. We will be out of here. See you next time, folks. Bye-bye.
4: We'll meet again. Don't know where don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day.
2: He's
4: smiling through, just like you always do, till the blue skies drive the dark clouds far. I won't be long.